Hi there. I'm Victoria White, a senior planner here at TMW Unlimited, a customer engagement agency in London. Welcome to Viewpoint. This is a series of podcasts discussing all sorts of future trends impacting how people behave and how brands need to respond right now to best capitalise on them. Today's our second episode, very exciting, and we'll be discussing automation, the impact it's having on the world we live in and what that means for brands. So let me introduce who I've got here with me in the studio at TMW. First, please meet Laura Dennehy, who is Head of Trends at Future Foundations Unlimited, who are our Futurology partners within the Unlimited group. Do you want to say hi, Laura, to everyone? Hello, everyone. Thank you. Um, I also have with me Daryl Delacroix, who is a consulting partner at Navigate Unlimited, who have just started up within Crescent Unlimited. So, Daryl, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, Victoria. I'm Daryl, and uh, I'm here representing Navigate Unlimited, which is uh, part of the Creston Unlimited group. And we specialise in marketing technology, which includes marketing automation. Thank you very much, Daryl. And last but not least, please meet Andy Robinson, who is a planning director here at TMW. So, Andy, do you want to say hi to everyone? Hi. Thank you very much. So that's everybody who's here. Let me just explain a little bit about how this is going to work. So we're going to talk about automation today, which is obviously a massive topic and is very much predicted to dramatically impact all of us in lots of different ways in the future. So we're going to break that down into a manageable discussion. And we've got three areas that Laura, Daryl and Andy are going to explore for us. So we'll do this as a bit of a roundtable discussion, which each of the guys kicking off one area for us. I'll jump in if I need to, um, to make sure we're really exploring the impact of automation for brands and how brands can best react to the opportunities it provides. So let's set the scene a little bit already. So automation is really already here with us, as we know. But things like last week's victory for Uber drivers claiming employment rights really brings the impact it's already having on people home. There's lots of movement and there's lots of disruption already happening. So I guess the question is, how do we all deal with that? So that takes us quite nicely into our first area of discussion. So what we're going to talk about first is the fact that automation isn't always welcomed. And actually, do we as humans really stop ourselves from making the most of automation with our sometimes obstructive behaviour? So that instinct we have to keep things the same. And so the question is, will automation only ever really be accepted when it removes friction from our day-to-day lives? And to progress, do brands need to think experience first to really engage consumers with any type of automation? So, Laura, would you like to kick us off with your thoughts on that? Yes. So I was thinking about one of the areas where automation has taken off the most in our life so far, the self-checkout in supermarkets. And now they seem very everyday. I think most of the time we probably seek them out over going to speak to a real person because we think they're quicker, they're easier. They certainly remove friction from the buying process. Unless, of course, you're trying to buy a bottle of wine, in which case the whole system seems to break. Um, But... It wasn't always the same. And we've been kind of tracking attitudes to self-service and people-free service delivery for quite a long time. So back back in 2009, self-service checkouts hadn't really taken off. They were introduced in the UK, but people hated them. People thought it was really going to damage customer service in supermarkets and is going to lead to, you know, no more brand consumer interaction in that space. And it was incredibly robotic and alien. 
But even back then, large majorities of people said that a benefit was that it saved time. So clearly, the friction, removing friction, was already there. But still, it was a new behaviour and people didn't want to adopt it. So I thought this was really interesting. Um, And one of the biggest changes we found from 2009 to 2012, which is really the time period when they took off in the majority, was that it was a small minority of people in 2009 who said a benefit is that there are no people involved. Fast forward to 2012, that's doubled, and a third of people say it's really great that there are no people. And I think now today, a few more years on that is one of the main reasons why people maybe seek them out. And we've relearned a new behaviour. We're much more used to automation there. And perhaps sometimes it's even a benefit if we don't have any time or if we're not feeling particularly friendly or maybe we're buying an embarrassing item and we'd rather put it through a self-service checkout. So, yeah, I guess I kind of think both of those things are true. Removing friction is definitely the key starting point to getting people to accept automation but there's also sometimes that stubborn human desire to stick with the old, suspicion of the new that has to be overcome too. Yeah, really true. And I think that point about humans not wanting to talk to people is perhaps coming more and more, <laughs> more and more to the forefront. And have you got anything, any thoughts on that? At all? I just, I think that's really interesting. Do you think the kind of key driver is the time saving, or is it removing people and that human to human interaction? Do you think as we're growing more comfortable? with technology and screens and user experiences improving, do you think our natural kind of starting point is wanting to jump into an automated process rather than a physical interaction? I think definitely, and I think the rise in using technology like alongside has driven it too. There are still some areas where people are reluctant to speak to a machine, though. Making complaints seems to always be a sticking point that people want to have human interaction. I don't know whether that's because at the moment we don't trust a chatbot and we worry that it's just not a real person and no one's taking us seriously. But I think that one, again, will change as AI develops, as natural language processing develops. And very soon we perhaps won't have this distinction between automation and people because we won't be able to tell the difference. In terms of automation assisting humans to kind of achieve tasks or because it's just automation is going to become so sophisticated that as a consumer I won't even know yeah well I think experience. I think the second one so I think one of our big technology trends we've been tracking for a long time is computers learn human and it's basically technology becoming a lot more intuitive and a lot more human and how we interact with it so it starts off with moving from kind of keyboards to gesture and mouse and swiping which is much more human and then it becomes more interactive it becomes warmer we've seen how buying things online used to be perhaps cold and clinical but now is friendly they try and offer you a touch of human service even though you're just sitting looking at a screen so i suppose at some point in the future these two things will collide and we won't realize whether we're chatting to a chatbot which is powered by ai or a customer service representative called Dave, they'll feel very similar. Can computers ever get, do you think, ever get to the point of empathy? Because I think that's really Mm. interesting about that customer service angle. feels to me like people are wanting that empathetic understanding from a person on the other end of the line who appreciates and understands their situation and can try and get to a resolution. Do you think AI will ever be able to reflect that? I think it will. I think... We're seeing early signs at the moment of emotion tracking. 
lots of this has started with tracking people's responses to watching adverts or watching movies. We work with a company called Sensum and they track both consumers' reported emotions when they're looking at something, but also the tiny kind of flickers of muscles on their faces and the emotions that their faces are showing. They can track things like sweat response and they can try and build through a machine an emotional understanding of the person that they're interacting with. Now, it's still a way off for a chatbot to recognise this and vary their tone. I think we've probably all seen a funny Alexa fail video with Amazon's Alexa misunderstanding situation or not realising that someone's making fun of her. But certainly, I think, in the next you know, 10, 20 years, we will see computers and AI becoming more empathetic, or striving to be, certainly. Yeah, I'd just like to say I totally agree with Laura that a lot of the technology is going to become more and more invisible. And, uh, you know, I think the, the example of chatbots, even today, the technology exists where, you know, you start a conversation with a chatbot and at a point where it gets fairly complicated, it's seamlessly handed off to a human. So already there's that invisible sort of nature to the type of automation. And lots of automation tools actually, you know, are in existence that customers don't even realise, like recommendations on on websites and personalised customer experiences and things like that, all involve degrees of, of automation. And I think we're very much on the cusp of, you know, an AI explosion, which is coming back from the MarTech Europe conference. You know, that was very much high on the agenda. AI, you know, IBM investing heavily with with their product called Watson. Salesforce have followed with, with Einstein. So there's all of this AI capabilities kind of coming to the forefront and we'll see more and more of that over the coming year. And I think people's attitudes to, to that kind of technology will increase. You know, if we look back into the past, we see the kind of like the rates of adoption of things like self-checkouts being perhaps fairly slow at first. But I think there's ever decreasing rates of technology adoption coming to the forefront and uh, sooner rather than later people will be feeling very comfortable talking to their automated assistants you know like the series and the alexas and, and things like that i just had a thought here about the uber decision from last week which obviously feels quite backward facing because if, from what everyone's saying it feels like as consumers we're really quite happy and on the cusp of adopting this but like the workplace and things like that uber decision is holding it back i don't know if anyone has any any thoughts about that and whether that is that decision is going to have a dramatic effect on stopping the rise of automation i think currently we're seeing i think previously the on-demand economy and the sharing economy was really booming and taking off and we're currently seeing quite a lot of legal backlash to that we also saw rulings against Airbnb and tightening up a lot of legislation around people being allowed to share and rent out spare rooms or their homes. So I think it's potentially a short-term thing. If we go very big picture on it, then we can see that Uber potentially in 10 years' time will be run entirely on driverless cars. So the notion of workers' rights won't be an, an option anymore because they'll all be driving themselves and I think many of us will welcome that because we'll sure there's suspicion and there's certainly been a lot of high profile kind of crashes with the Tesla cars at the moment but long term I think people will be persuaded to think that it's safer there isn't any human error in a driverless car anymore and I think people will adopt that. 
I think the legal system's always retroactive. It, it always has to respond to a new situation, a new case. I think that the struggle has been how the pace of automation is accelerating and, and can the legal framework keep up with that? Can politicians react and, and have, a, have a broad enough view forward to actually take into account technology changes? Can they draft legislation that is encompassing enough for how technology is going to develop? I'm not sure that the Uber decision is necessarily a bad one for those workers and for those employers. It, it, it's a it's a grey area, it's a new type of employment and as a society I suppose we need to decide what rights those kind of workers and employers should have but within the existing framework it feels like they're closer to being employed than they are to being a freelancer or being their own self-employed driver. I think the, the challenge that Uber has off the back of that as businesses, they've essentially driven their business model on two things removing friction and price and if they're no longer able to compete on price it's that frictionless experience sticky enough to keep the consumers that they have and to lock in new members i think it probably is i you know it is a it is such a departure from the old way of trying to plan ahead call a mini cab it doesn't arrive they're just at the end of the street honestly no they're not um you know now it gives the, the user so much more control and visibility into that sector that i think the the experience probably is superior enough that it's going to it's going to retain those users i think the your point about control is really true as well apparently in early development one of the things that consumers really liked about uber was that it shows you the little graphic of the car and it shows you how far away it is. So even if you actually end up waiting 15 minutes for it to arrive, you feel like you can check on it and you feel like you know where you are. You're not completely in the dark, standing on a street corner, hoping that something's going to turn up. And I think that's the area where they're pushing their development. They released yesterday their plans for how they're planning to kind of transform and become even more immediate. And there's one quote from one of their people which really stuck out for me they said we want to know what you want before you want it so users who choose to share their data with the app they'll track their location they'll track their behaviors they'll try to preempt when they might want to order an uber they can sync with your calendar so that you can click on any appointment in the uber app and it'll take you there and if a friend chooses to share with you you can click on a friend and that can become a destination and it'll take you to wherever they are so all of this i think is like you say it's more of that immediacy, more of that convenience, and then also still allowing the consumer to be in control of it or feel in control of it. Yeah, that sounds. I mean, that sounds really interesting. I think actually takes us really clearly onto point number two because I think that that thought about control is really making us as consumers become very demanding and very, I guess, expectant of instant gratification. And I guess it's fair to say that brands are already struggling to keep up to that. So you know, back to the taxi point, it's amazing how the right automation quickly changes your behaviour. So hailing a cab in the street now, as Laura was just saying, feels very archaic. And so I guess the point to take out of that is that brands that don't react quickly enough very soon get left behind and they will have to adopt automation or they will quite literally just be dead on their feet. So, um, Daryl, I was just going to ask you what your thoughts were around this and are brands doing enough to react to the challenge of automation? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think... Um you know, just to carry on with the Uber example, one interesting thing that happened yesterday, I was, I was discussing the Uber app with someone and, 
it just shows how customer experience is kind of, you know, the expectations um, of customers just increases because, you know, we were talking about a, a, a great app and you can track, track where the car is and everything like that. But this person was getting annoyed about a tiny little couple of second lag between where the where the cab actually was and and where the the app thought it was so it just shows the level of um kind of expectation how you soon get used to technology and demand more from it but i think brands are have got a long way to to go actually and i think that um if we take the example of marketing automation and automated campaign management we've got some very established tools out there that i think brands even after many, many years, are still not utilising to, to full, full effect. And um, that's just the, the very, very basics of being able to deliver seamless customer experiences. And if you look then at uh, the fact that actually in today's world, we can't just rely on pushing very controlled messages to customers when the brand feels like it. You know, we have to instead react to um, whichever channel a customer appears in at any particular time and acknowledge them, recognize them and, and try to understand the context in which they're, they're contacting us in. And, you know, here we're in the realms of um, sort of inbound real-time interaction management. And uh, I think there, you know, even less brands are managing to get a grip of that area. There are very big gaps in technology around that space too. There are a few sort of heavy-duty pieces of kit that will personalise inbound customer experiences, but they're notoriously difficult to, to manage and difficult to implement. And uh, there's like a big overhead of operating those pieces of technology. But I think that, uh, again, you know, AI is going to make all of that sort of stuff on the surface easier to and, and more accessible to, to brands to actually adopt. But it's the, the, the problem is it's the innovating brands that are the ones that adopt quickly and raise customers expectations and then it causes a problem for for the rest of the brands who who just don't have time to to respond and react and suddenly you know they're they're kind of uh, at risk of being disrupted by other brands and losing customers yeah, I'm sure you're right about that. And I think that applies to all categories, like driverless cars and things that Laura touched on earlier. And have you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, I wonder just, Daryl, how long is kind of the Uber-like experience going to remain a differentiator, do you think? How how long until that becomes the, the kind of default expectation of, of consumers and the default experience in the marketplace? Well, I think that, uh, you know, that, that, that time is, is getting shorter and shorter where companies can differentiate. And as you say, the, the standards are, are raised, customer expectations become higher, technology becomes easier all the time. So it, it's easier to kind of like for some to then catch up potentially. And then there needs to be new means of differentiating. I, I suppose one of my kind of key thoughts or questions is how easy is it for, for established brands to actually do this and, and achieve this kind of customer experience because you know big blue chip companies huge legacy infrastructure issues as you alluded to massively expensive for them to put in these kind of kits and then you're looking then at 
startups who come along, they don't have any of those overheads, any of those kind of legacy problems, and they can build not just the marketing experience, but the whole service and product experience from the ground up in a way that utilizes all of this. Is it realistic to expect blue chip companies are ever going to to achieve the kind of experience that that we're now seeing out in the marketplace i don't think they have any choice but to and uh i I think you're absolutely right that um you know startups without the baggage do have an advantage in in that respect but a lot of the time it's not actually the legacy technology barriers so much as um, the way the organization is structured in terms of people i think we need to uh, think about new ways of working I think we need to organise ourselves around the customer and not around sort of departments that don't necessarily make sense anymore and we need to perhaps adopt more agile practices so you're working in perhaps cross-functional teams that are empowered to make decisions very quickly and you know can test things and iterate and get things out to customers quickly. Now, I'm sure that's really true, and I think we'll probably all find um, with a lot of people we work with, that's going to be a pretty difficult thing to achieve. Laura, have you got any, any thoughts on this subject at all? Well, I suppose there's also the question of whether, as a brand, you need to be creating one of these services or whether you need to be building partnerships with the existing giants in the area. Uber seems to now have an on-demand service everything with Uber Eats and taxis and everything. And I suppose the big thought in the tech community is this notion of platformization which is whichever voice assistant develops the fastest will take over and ultimately we're reaching a time of peak apps at the moment and we might end up kind of coming into a future where people will only ever speak to Siri and Siri will choose which app or which service or which brand to choose and that's obviously quite a threatening picture for brands because if you aren't going to be chosen by the algorithm then you're just out of the picture and the consumer never engages with you. So I suppose that's an alternative approach to try and be one of the early brands that will partner with one of these systems, perhaps brands who partner with Amazon Dash buttons. Although again, I don't think that we really expect people are going to have a button for every single brand that they have in their house all over their house, quickly take over interior design. But yeah, perhaps it's looking at things like Amazon's auto replenishment service, where it can work with smart household appliances to automatically reorder products in your home. Perhaps it's looking at systems like that alongside apps, alongside partnerships that you can be developing. I think that platform platformization point mm. is really interesting because what you start to get then is a is brands starting to have a diminishing role in consumers' lives and, and actually starting to move into the background. Yeah. My primary relationship is with an Amazon or with a Google and they know everything about me and can automate my experience and give me that kind of perfect interaction with the world, then the brands kind of stop having that direct contact with the consumer. They almost start to move into the background and become a fulfillment of, of that consumer relationship or just a cog in the background rather than actually the direct connection that we have at the moment with lots of brands. Yeah, definitely. You almost see a world where they become B2B brands, B2B suppliers rather than B2C brands. I think it's certainly a threat. I think a lot of brands would argue against it and say that they've got, you know, that consumers are incredibly loyal to them, incredibly loyal to their 
particular variation, the scent that they use in their washing powder or whatever it is. But I think it will certainly be a more challenging landscape for them to build loyalty, essentially. And potentially, if an algorithm is deciding on the basis of price alone or the basis of convenience alone, then any human bias or other factors just get factored out. That's really interesting because when you look at kind of work that Byron Sharp's done around actually how disloyal consumers are and mm. how they shop in multiple categories from everything from automobiles right the way through to washing tablets and consumers are quite happy to repertoire buy across a number of brands and yeah. this idea of brand loyalty is actually maybe a bit of a myth or an ephemera yeah. within kind of marketing you know this rise of automation and the, and the interface with the platform might actually reveal to marketers and brand managers around the world that that lie has been true and and yes. you know everything that the kind of the value that was inherent in their brand maybe wasn't real maybe it, it brands are overvalued and they don't have the 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 impact on consumers lives that sometimes we like to think that they do yeah i think also there's such a shift in notion of value that we have now so we've we've known for a long time that price has a big impact on loyalty and that promotions are probably the most fail-safe way to get people to to boost your sales. But I think the thing that we've been talking about this morning is basically this time cost idea. And increasingly, convenience is a facet of value. So maybe the brands that will win in this world will be those that are there the most immediately and the most conveniently. And people will be loyal to them. But as soon as they slip up on that, then they're not going to be loyal to them anymore and they're going to be looking elsewhere. It sounds like Tesco's will turn out to be the good guy in the uh, new <laughs> world of the brand world and they'll be longing for them <laughs> for them to be their main supplier. Um, just it's, it's really interesting this point about, I guess, how algorithms are going to rule our worlds or potentially in the future. So just to go on to our third area, um, I want to talk about that in a bit more detail. So I think we talked about automation as being very positive, but it's obviously going to have a very misunderstood or ununderstood impact on our lives in the future. And I think this question about algorithms and people sort of taking or computers taking ownership of decisions that we that we make really does raise this questions about privacy um, and how you know what right algorithms have to use our data. So I guess it's really thought about that and you know do humans have rights over automation? So Andy, I know you've got some thoughts on that. Yeah, sure. I, th- I think it's a very complicated topic to try and pin down because we don't ultimately know what's going to happen. So one of the big changes or, or kind of a, a function of, of the change of the rise of automation, and it happens with kind of any seismic shift, is this idea of second order effects of the unintended or the unforeseen consequences of a particular course of action. So it happened with the arrival of the automobile. It was you know, quite easy to predict the mass adoption of it, but much harder to foresee the rise of outward town shopping centres and that what that would do to the high street, for example. And we've seen it with with smartphones. You know, people could predict that people would get their emails on the phones and be able to reply more quickly, but not necessarily understand the consequences on. I don't know, things like the camera industry and, and how putting a camera in every smartphone has, has essentially killed that kind of consumer durable. And I think a, g- a good way to kind of demonstrate that, bring that to life, we've talked a bit about automated vehicles and, and those kind of cars coming along, self-driving cars, and maybe some of the unintended or unforeseen consequences of, of how that might change consumers' lives. So cars 
when you remove remove the driver from the equation, cars will be able to drive more quickly. They'll be able to drive much more closer together. So then you have a much better driving experience. You start to remove traffic jams from the equation. What does that do to public transport then? If you've got a much more superior experience in, a, in an individual vehicle, does that kill off the buses and, and that kind of bus industry? Will consumers then stop owning cars? Because if it's all on demand and all automated, if Uber's predicting my needs so precisely that a car just arrives when I need it, why would I bother owning one? I'll just rent one on demand. And then suddenly you have loads of free space outside people's homes. You don't need a driveway anymore. What, what happens to that space? What happens to a garage in people's houses? So all of these kind of second order effects are really interesting. And even you can start to look at consumers' kind of attitudes and culture. So when you start thinking about the boy racer if you know if people don't have that ability to drive anymore if we're kind of having to say that needs to be outlawed because it's much safer to just have computers running the whole system then how do teenage boys express and what's that outlet are you going to start to see crime in other areas graffiti maybe rising up as kind of teenage boys are looking to to rebel in other ways so i think this kind of whole area is very crucial to start to understand some of these kind of knock-on consequences into the kind of things that you were talking about around things like privacy and data because when we start to then explore this idea of a platform and the platform understanding me and the platform knowing it's very hard for a brand to kind of perfectly profile an individual and to build up that amount of information that's needed to deliver a truly automated or truly predictive experience so I think that need for data is going to start to really shift power within the consumer landscape. You're going to start to have much more power rested on the likes of Google and, and Apple and Amazon if they don't have enough power already <laughs> because they need all of that data to, to deliver the kind of automated experiences that consumers want. So as we've already talked about, is that going to start to herald the end of kind of B2C brands and have many more B2B brands? A brand's going to stop kind of collecting or trying to collect first-party data. They're just going to license data from Google, from a Facebook, from an Amazon to automate their experience, to create that kind of customer experience for consumers. And maybe people will be okay with that if it delivers them the frictionless experience that, that they want. If brands, I think certainly bigger brands like Google and like Facebook know that that kind of transparency about how consumers' data is being used is, is is important and, and they get it more than other brands who are chasing you around the internet with retargeting display ads because you happen to look for a sofa on their website for example are they going to be much start to be even more radically transparent about understanding you showing what they know helping consumers to actually add in more data to to build a more sophisticated and richer profile so that they can ultimately offer that back to you in the form of an improved service Maybe consumers will be happy with that if it delivers them the value that, that they need. I think the, the point is, though, that um, you know, they are very, very big questions. And uh, what's really important is that people from all different backgrounds start trying to tackle this problem and try and predict various different scenarios on how this could play out. Because what we need to do is make sure that you know, we're in control of, of our futures and, and that we can shape the way we want things to actually emerge and you touched on it earlier Andy about you know legislation having to keep up or, or struggling to keep pace and I mean if you look just 
across you know recent history of like uh, the data protection regulations for example you know we're we're just about to bring out a, a european legislation which is bringing up to date a very outmoded data protection act that has been outdated for a number of years but with with increases in technology increasing and you know the rapid shift of change is more and more important to stay on top of these things yeah and there was a story wasn't there in the press yesterday about uh, an insurance company that wanted to look at facebook your facebook profile to um try and work out what level of car insurance you should pay uh which i think does feel quite intrusive at first thought so i mean laura i don't know if you've got any more thoughts on this i thought this was a particularly funny example because thinking about the things that everybody shares on social media you're sharing an exaggerated fun version of yourself not a version of yourself that is a safe driver <laughs> so how quite how they used facebook data to determine how safe you were at driving i'm not sure but no there was huge backlash to that and i think there's been a shift and i think consumers now think of their data as something valuable and they recognize that they're not going to give it to people willy-nilly for novelty or for simple discounts so I kind of agree with what you were saying, Andy. It's got to become a value exchange and they've got to offer significantly better service, significantly better convenience in order for consumers to say, yes, fine, you can have access to my data. And I think with the car insurance example, it's got to feel relevant. It's got to feel like they should get access to to the right form of data. And perhaps Facebook social media data didn't feel very relevant for car insurance. Another interesting one is health data. Obviously, with all the health apps today, you know, there's lots of sensitive information that's being collected about you. And, you know, what's the future application of all of that information? There's a couple of really interesting things being done with DNA data collection. And I think lots of the early startups that offer you DNA personalised services um, they're also looking to kind of build huge big databases of everyone's DNA with the aim to, you know, push forward research in that area, discover pioneering things. So I agree it's a very personal area and it's a difficult area, but I also think that there's potential kind of huge improvements and in, in innovation to be had there. Looking at that kind of element of unintended consequences, I think it's also interesting to think about the second order effects on, on marketing as a discipline as well. So this whole idea of automation kind of removing the need for human input and removing the need for for people to actually engage and interact to, to, to do that kind of action themselves, so self-driving cars, cars driving themselves, and you suddenly start to get a de-skilling of people being able to drive. And it's already happened in the airline industry, so planes pretty much fly themselves and only require pilots to intervene when something goes wrong. And that's a massive issue because then pilots become babysitters of a machine and lose the ability to fly the aeroplane. So when the Air France flight from Brazil to to France that sadly crashed was a result of that exact situation happening, the autopilot disengaged, the fly-by-way system turned off and then suddenly the pilot pilots weren't able to, to fly the plane and, and they actually caused it to crash. So you, you, you end up in this situation where automation stops people having the skills and the ability it's like a paradox you know the, the more we make it easy for people to do things the less they're capable of doing them themselves and i think we're looking at the marketing lens how much is that going to start to apply to brands in terms of being able to deliver customer experiences and, and kind of crm programs if we're, if we're automating them if we're taking those kind of systems 
out of the hands of brands and putting them into maybe a Salesforce or maybe ultimately an, an Amazon or a Google, how much a, a brand's going to lose control of, of their kind of their ecosystem, how much a, a marketer's going to lose the skills to be able to effectively set up, you know, really compelling customer experiences and how much a, a, is there going to be almost like a standardization of that because it's being done by someone else in a, in a third party in another environment. I think at the same time, though, there's a real changing attitude to skill acquisition. And there's so many more people who exist in a state of continuous learning. It's so easy now to kind of quickly download a skill, use it for as long as you need it, then reskill, retrain. Even things like Duolingo, the language app, it makes it feel quite easy to learn a language. It breaks it down into bite-sized chunks. You could potentially learn a few phrases before your holiday forget them very easily afterwards but you've gained that new skill for the time that you needed it so I wonder whether automation will push this forward even more and if especially young people are aware that there is much more of a genuine threat that robots might take their jobs maybe they will live in this age where they have multiple career changes we already have more career changes than we did 10-20 years ago but we have so many intelligent tools out there that ease the process of learning a new skill or retraining or something else then we also need to consider kind of like the the effects on perhaps extra time so if we again take the example of driverless cars you know if you're not driving and doing a long commute what are you doing during that journey so you know you could be doing all sorts of things and there's the potential there to disrupt other industries as well with that so you know could you on a long journey are you sleeping so for example is that disrupting hotel industries as well and um, you know or watching a movie which is obviously disruption again uh, across different industries but yeah you, you'd also have a lot of free time on your hands to gain back for the potential for extra learning and things like that as well I suppose even where people live so are you going to start to see a, a de-urbanisation as if, if consumers are, are mobile and able to kind of work or enjoy leisure time because they're not needing to drive or be, you know, focused on, on, on their mobility, then does everybody need to live within an hour of a city centre? Mm. Can you, you start to see much more of a networked uh, society with a distribution of labour and capital across the whole country rather than being concentrated Absolutely. in the southeast of England because yeah. everybody needs to live together? Thanks so much, everyone, for a really interesting discussion that I think we could have gone on for hours. I guess we've established a number of things that will impact brands going forward. We've talked about how early adopters raise consumer expectations so much that non-adapting brands are outpaced by those consumers. And I think that leads to the question if blue chips will ever be able to keep pace and if they'll need to really change their behaviours to do that. But alongside that, there's the thought about the legal framework um, and how that needs to change to adapt to all these massive automation uh, jumps forward. And I guess so far it's not. And I think it's questionable whether the discussed EU data legislation will actually be out of date by the time it finally arrives. We've also talked about how the ultimate ambition for AI is that it becomes seamless and it has the ability to hand off to agents without us actually knowing 
And finally, that potentially brands will be pushed behind platforms who will then start to decide which brands we interact with based on their decisions and not ours. And the impact of unforeseen consequences which could arise from that. So all scary and exciting stuff. And there we have our second Viewpoint podcast. Thanks for listening. We've really enjoyed discussing this pretty big, heavy topic and look out for our next episode, which will be released very soon.